0: Heavenly Father, we thank you that you inhabit the praises of your people and so that you would manifest yourself now here in our presence that this day we might see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Right after our annual meeting, uh, when we uh, elect new vestry members, what I do is we gather uh, as a new vestry... uh, for a little retreat here in-house. And one of the ways that we break the ice is we ask new vestry members what their favorite Bible verse is and what their favorite hymn is. And I've been surprised through the years to see that the song we just sang has rocketed to the top. All right, think of the irony of the fact that here at the Advent, which is such a traditional uh, congregation, our favorite hymn was written in the disco era. Uh, and yet, uh, and yet, there, there it is, uh, and uh, it is a uh, wonderful song. Uh, people request it at their funerals. Uh, well, they don't, but the family does. Uh, people request it at uh, at at their weddings. Uh, it's uh, the day school sings it every single week. When we rotate it out during morning prayer, people get upset. Why? Because they love this hymn. Now, you probably have a favorite hymn. If it's not this, it's something else. Because what makes it your favorite is that you have a connection to it. When you sing it, you know that what you are singing is true about God and true about you. You're singing your story. It's a song that you sing in celebration. It's a song that you sing in times of trial. And this morning, in Isaiah 12, Isaiah gives us such a hymn. And Isaiah, in just these six verses, lays out for us the promise of praise. He talks about the nature of praise, the point of praise, and the unity of praise. Right out of the gate, Isaiah declares uh, Who God is and what he has done for his people because he knows that redemption results in praise. Redemption results in praise. Knowing that you have been redeemed, that you've been rescued, that you've been saved results in you praising the one who has done the rescuing. Now, Isaiah is writing this song in the midst of a coming judgment uh, upon the people of Israel. In the last verse of chapter 11, right before he gets to this song, we read, "...and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt." Israel is about to undergo a terrible judgment at the hands of ungodly nations, Assyria and Babylon. But there will come a day when God himself will make a way possible where it seems to be no way. He will make himself a highway for his people to return home from exile. And so even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of defeat, Isaiah says, we sing this song knowing that though we are under the bondage and yoke of an oppressor, we will sing a song of praise, knowing who God is, that he is the God who rescues. That's what Isaiah means. Salvation is of the Lord. The Lord saves. That's what his name means. No, Isaiah admits too, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. God's disposition to us as his people is not ebb and flow. In our culture, we have a very hard time believing that God could be angry with anybody. We see that kind of God is unloving and judgmental. But what we miss But what Isaiah gets right is that God's anger and judgment is because of of his love for us, not in spite of it. Anger is not the opposite of love. They actually go hand in hand. The opposite of love is apathy, not caring at all. Think of the child that you have that has gone completely and totally off the rails especially if you have a loved one who suffers from addiction. You get angry, don't you? You want to shake them. You want to knock them back into their senses. Why, why won't you just get it together? Why can't you see things as they really are? Why are you living in a lie? You get angry not because you don't love them, but you get angry because you do love them. Your anger is proportional to the love that you have for them. The unloving thing would just say, yeah, go do whatever you want. But because you love them, you get angry. And so that's why God is angry with his people, because he loves them, because they've wandered far off. They put their trust in themselves. And so he will send even the ungodly to chastise them. But Isaiah reminds us, anger is not the final word for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible never teaches that the wrath and judgment of God is removed in that it is simply turned to love. That is, God says, all right, I'm done being angry. Now I'll start to love you. Why? Because God's righteousness and his judgment is perfect. And so it has to be executed. He can't simply look the other way. So it doesn't just turn from anger to love, but his anger and perfect justice has to be appropriated in another direction. But where it was once aimed squarely at us, where does it go now? It's aimed squarely at him. All the sins of the world were laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ himself bore God's punishment, God's wrath, God's judgment that we justly deserved, but Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. That's a hard word. But if God's justice were not perfect we'd be in big trouble. That's not a God worth worshiping. I think when he comes back again, he's not going to come as a vulnerable baby born in a manger, but he's going to come in great might and triumph to judge the world. As Johnny Cash said, every hair on every arm will stand when the man comes around. When he comes back, you'll know it. And when he comes... All the wrongs in the world, all the injustices will be made right because of his perfect justice. Everything that has been broken down because of sin, God will make new. Where things have been fallen apart, he will bind together because of his justice. But because of Jesus, God's anger has been turned to love because of him. So Isaiah is saying the nature of praise is to understand how great God's love is for you in Jesus Christ. You have to understand that. You have to appropriate it. If you don't understand God's love, if you don't know of your redemption in Jesus Christ, then you won't praise because you have nothing to be grateful for. You won't at all be interested in declaring God's attributes to him. But not only are we recognizing who God is and what he has done for us, we are declaring aloud to him, to others, and to ourselves. That's the point of praise. Now, in our day and age, if I were to say in the church, let us stand and praise the Lord, which sometimes I do, what do you think we're going to do next? We're going to sing, right? That's what you think. Uh, But you don't have to sing uh, to praise the Lord. If I said uh, about my wife, if I was declaring her attributes, Lauren is a lovely, faithful, godly wife and mother of our children. That would be praising her, right? Do I have to do it like this? Lauren is a wonderful and lovely and godly wife and mother. That sounds worse, actually, right? Uh, But in both instances, I'm praising. I don't have to sing uh, to praise the Lord. And yet, Isaiah says here in the narrative of Scripture, even so, Christians are a singing people. We have an entire hymn book in our Bible, the book of Psalms. Uh, At the Reformation, all the great hymns that came out, Luther, in fact, said, Next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. And the great hymns, probably some of your favorites, that came out of the wonderful evangelical revival in England. And so, yes, we are a singing people. But even more than that, all of our life is worship. All of our life is worship. Worship is not something that we do uh, between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m., God willing, uh, on a Sunday morning, and then you go about your merry business as if you're not worshiping beyond that. But in fact, everything we do is worship. And Luther has a wonderful word about what worship looks like in our average, everyday, and seemingly mundane lives. He talks about the Lord's Prayer. And he says, "...the petition that God would give us this day our daily bread." I mean, does that mean that you sit at the dining room table and you pray that prayer, and then poof, there's a loaf of bread? Now, how does that bread get to your table? Well, there's a farmer who plows the field, sows the seed, waters it, brings it to fruition, harvests it. So He's got farm workers, and then that's sent off to the granary where they turn it into flour, and then the flour is sent to the bakery where the baker turns it into uh, bread, and then you need a delivery truck to get it from the bakery to the supermarket where you have clerks, uh, and then they need consumers, and then they're advertising people, uh, and then you buy the bread, and you bring it home. All of that is God's work. God, in his mercy, is actually using the farmer, the grain miller, the delivery truck, the baker, the store clerk, to accomplish his purposes. That's God's work. That's worshipful work. That's understanding that you're not just sowing grain. You're not just thrashing it out. You're not just baking bread, but God is using you to give us this day our daily bread. And so in our daily lives, in our singing, in our praise, our worship, Is declaring to others God's mighty works of redemption. That's why Isaiah says, Let this be known in all the earth. But also because of our own weakness and frailty, where our hearts don't want to praise God, we don't feel like singing out. But man, we need praise in order to preach to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves of how beautiful Jesus is and who we are in him. That's why this is such a wonderful hymn. We need the reminder. And yes, we may praise God individually, but he calls on us to praise him corporately as his people. Uh, there's the point in the hymn, and I don't know if you ever noticed, I kind of look out at you uh, when uh, we sing, Cry aloud, you inhabitants of Zion and I turn and I look at you. Why? You're all Zionites. You're all dwellers in Zion. You are all God's people for those who put their trust in him. God is not more especially present in singing, but he is in our midst when believers come together, open his word, and declare his mighty works through praise, praising him in song and preaching, and praying, and in coming together around the Lord's table. God inhabits the praise of his people because he inhabits you. God is in our midst even now because of you, not because of the building, but wherever two or three are gathered together in his name, where is God? In the midst of them. When the Emmaus disciples uh, were on the road and Jesus appeared to them and then disappeared, uh, what was their testimony? Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the word to us? That's church. That's worship. It's not just here, but whenever God's people gather to sing his praises, to give honor to his name. Isaiah tells us, don't you know who it is that is in your midst? The Holy One of Israel the one who formed you in your mother's womb, the one who called Abraham out, the one that that saved Noah and his family from the flood, the one that saved Isaac's life by putting a ram in the thicket, the one who took Jacob, who was a swindler, and made him the hope and future of the people of Israel, the one who spoke to Moses and led the Israelites through Egypt out of the land of bondage into a land of promise, the one the prophets foretell, the one who has come to dwell amongst us to die for us, was raised for us, and now sits at the right hand of the Father advocating on our behalf. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and he's here in you. That is why when we gather together as the family of God, we should sing out full-throated the praises of the Lord, for he has done great things. Recently, I read a headline in the satirical news site, The Babylon Bee. And the headline was, Motion-Activated Lights Turn Off During Presbyterian Worship Service. <laughs> <clears throat> well, uh, it's not just the Presbyterians. Uh, it's, it's us as well. Now, that doesn't mean that we're jubilant and exuberant uh, just for the sake of being that... Uh, But when you think upon what Jesus Christ has done for you, does it make your heart sing? Are you able to bring into worship actually Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid? Are you actually able to come in and say, God, I'm a wreck? And that there are songs and readings and prayers that shake you to the point of tears. Because you realize that God has not abandoned you and that he is indeed in your midst. That's praise. That's worship. We sing out because the nature of praise is our redemption through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though we were far off from God, though we were his enemies... He has made us his children by adoption because of his grace to us. The point of this praise is to declare aloud to God, to others and to ourselves, who God is and what he has done. We need to be reminded ourselves. And why is it that those great hymns bring comfort to us and to others when you sing them? Because they remind us of who God is. And so testify to yourselves and testify to one another through your singing. And when we do that, we are unified as the body of Christ, God's church, his people. We are the stones of the spiritual temple that God is building. And when we gather together, he is with us. That is the promise of praise. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would come mightily in our midst, that you would give us bold and courageous hearts to praise you, to extol you, and to sing of your great deeds so that the very ends of the earth will hear of who you are and what you have done for them. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs)